Okay. So, oh, I guess we can, um, this is a bit strange because I think you're more used to interviewing other people, but here I am interviewing you. That, it's, it's all good. I'm sure you're good. You've done it both ways many times. Anyway, so uh, hello, Free Speech and Medicine podcast listeners. Um, thanks for tuning in. And uh, I really appreciate Dr. Gad Saad, uh, who's a big name in this kind of whole crazy world of free speech that's developed in the last few years. Uh, Thanks very much for joining me, and thanks for agreeing to come to our conference this year. Uh, I'm so excited to be with you now, and even more excited to be with you in person in a month, uh, not only because of the, the context of the event, but uh, we've never been to that beautiful part of Canada, so we can't be serious Canadians not having visited there. So look forward to seeing you soon. Well, you're you're missing out. Uh, just so you know, it's you know it's very Scottish heritage here. So we'll have to rename you Mixod, and you have to wear a kilt and a tamil <laughs> shanter when you come. Just to warn you. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, so uh, a lot of the people who who follow free speech and medicine will really know who you are. Probably have consumed at least one or maybe both your books. But uh, maybe you could start off, I'll, I'll follow the same format as with some of our other speakers. Maybe just tell us just a brief thumbnail sketch. Who are you and uh, what's your background? Yeah, so I'll give you both a bit of the, you know, 30-second personal stuff and then the professional. Uh, I was born in Beirut, Lebanon, grew up there, had to leave because of the Lebanese Civil War, moved to Canada, grew up in Canada as of the age of 11 then uh, went on to pursue my more advanced studies in the United States. And I've been back in Canada since 2003. Uh, in terms of professionally, I'm, a, I, I'm, I'm someone who marries several cognate disciplines. Uh, and so I apply, of course, psychology to study decision-making, to study consumer decision-making, economic decision-making. But what is perhaps more unique to my profile is that I apply evolutionary psychology and evolutionary biology to study human behavior in general and consumer behavior in particular. So I'm at the intersection of evolutionary biology and consumer psychology. That's my, uh, you know, uh, I, if you like my academic uh, profile. Uh, that said, uh, I always remind people that uh, I have faced two great wars in my life. The first great war was the one in Lebanon. The second great war is the war on reason that I have faced for the past 30 years as a professor. That's what compelled me to then write uh, this guy right here, the yellow book, The Parasitic Mind, where I basically argued, uh, and which is, I mean, I think uniquely relevant to a medical-oriented uh, audience, uh, Neuroparasites are parasites that can infect many different animals. There's a struggle between the host and the parasite. Usually the parasite is trying to alter the neuronal circuitry of the host to suit its own reproductive interest. So I took that framework and I argued that human beings, whilst they can certainly be parasitized by actual brain worms, by actual neuroparasites, they can be parasitized by a second class of parasites. I call these idea pathogens ideological parasites. And so what I do in the book is I trace each of these idea pathogens. Regrettably, as a professor, I'm here to tell you that all of these idea pathogens started off in a university ecosystem because it takes intellectuals to come up with some of the dumbest ideas. And therefore, I talk about these parasites, these ideological parasites, and then I offer 
using medical terminology, I offer hopefully a mind vaccine to try to inoculate us against some of this imbecility. Mm-hmm. Well, which kind of leads me into one of the things I wanted to ask you. So you you are a professor at a Canadian university, which is as at least Concordia is at least as infected with wokeism as any other university these days. How how have you managed to survive that environment? It often has made me wonder. Universities are not a great place these days for people who actually seek the truth and speak the truth. And but you're still there. How how have you managed? Are you a CIA plant <laughs> or a Mossad agent? Yeah. Uh, uh, you, you know, it's it's a question that people often ask me because it is it it, it does. Uh, uh, you know, strike one as quite uh, incredible that given how outspoken I am, I mean, I probably say more things that are that can that are worthy of being canceled by a given Monday morning than most people will say in their career. I think there is a combination of things. Number one, uh, I am someone who does their homework whenever I take a position, so that I'm while I'm very irreverent to political correctness when I take a position boy, I can defend it. And so good luck to you if you come to me to try to debate me on the content and the merits of the positions that I've taken, right? So I don't go off the cuff. If I take a position, I'm able to defend it, number one. Number two, I do very much uh, exhibit the honey badger attitude, which is if you're going to come after me, it's going to be very costly. Now, it doesn't mean I'm going to come after you and beat you up. But I'm certainly not going to wilt away and you know suck my thumb in a fetal position. And so I think that, plus the fact that, I mean, I'm only speaking of myself because you asked me the question, right? Uh, I think I do have also a personal style that makes it, for, for some people, it's too spicy. But for other people, it's quite disarming because I do use humor. I do use satire. I am someone who smiles a lot. And those are certainly cues that even your staunchest enemies, I mean, I had one guy who interviewed me once and at the end of the chat, he said to me, you know, I'm very upset at you guys. I said, oh, why is that? He goes, because I came with every intention to really dislike you during this chat, but God damn it, you're so likable. And so I think, <laughs> I think that also contributes to maybe why I don't get some of the vitriol that others do. And to be fair to Concordia, while they haven't been, I mean, they haven't been openly hostile towards me, what they have done is they have pretended as though I don't exist. So in a sense, we've we've reached an entente, a, a an implicit entente, whereby I go about doing my things and they just stay out of my way, which is regrettable because you would think that they should be proud of some of the things that I do, but uh, they'd rather just avoid, uh, you know, marking the fact that I exist. So that's how I've been able to exist so far, knock on wood. Uh, you know, you know, it's a tough time in the universities when the best you can hope for is to be ignored. Uh, <laughs> exactly like the, right. You've reached the pinnacle. I, <laughs> I have reached the pinnacle. It's like a Nobel Prize. Exactly. Um, so there's a lot of us. Uh, you know, I'm I'm a little bit involved with the university through the med school and having taught residents went up, but I'm kind of an outsider looking in, as most of us. Is it really as bad as it appears? Is it really that bad inside the university? Yeah, that's that's a great question. So it depends how you want to frame uh, the answer to your question. So if 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 what you're saying is, are most of the students who are walking around campus, you know, as I 
you know, jokingly say blue haired Taliban who are, you know, woke activists, then the answer, then the good news is going to be absolutely not. Right. So most just go about merrily about doing their business. But then here's the bad part. How many people did it take to alter the New York landscape on September 11, 2001? Was it 19 million terrorists? Was it 190 million terrorists? Oh, no, it was only 19 terrorists. So in other words, it doesn't take many people to create devastating change, right? And it goes very slowly, uh, bit by bit. The professors become infected with all of these parasitic ideas. They pass those on to their students. Their students become the prime minister of Canada, who is a walking machine of woke gibberish. And so in the day-to-day, I can go about my business in class without ever seeing any manifestations of those woke ideas. But you have to take a a wider view of the problem. Uh, Can you speak freely in class? Will most students tell you they avoid saying certain things and they engage in self-censorship? Then the number would be 95%. So it depends which metric you're looking at. Are most students walking activists? Absolutely not. Is there an environment of great self-censorship where we are losing the battle on reason? Absolutely, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I'm going to get into some bigger questions, which I, I appreciate that you may not be able to answer well in a short format. But um, do you, what do you point to as the, the, maybe the few biggest factors that have led us to that new environment of the self-censorship and this kowtowing to that small percentage of easily offended people how do how do we get there right well yeah that is a big question that's it's basically called the parasitic mind the entire book is all about that so look uh and actually i i'm I'm thinking of using as this kind of framework in in part of my talk uh at the end of the month at, at at your conference uh operations research is a applied mathematics field where you're trying to optimize something you're trying to minimize something or you're trying to maximize something so how do how do we design this thing to minimize wasted material how, what should be our manufacturing plant schedule to maximize profit so it's an applied mathematics field that tries to solve what are called objective functions. What are you trying to minimize or maximize? Now why am I saying all this? Uh, and I touch upon this briefly in the parasitic mind. What is the objective function that the university is trying to maximize? Well, historically, we would have all agreed that it's to pursue truth, it's to enrich your your intellect, and therefore those were the metrics that we were all, you know, weaponizing all of our tools to try to maximize, optimize, so that the ch- if the student leaves the school having received a well-founded, well-reasoned education, it could be in classics, it could be in medicine, it could be in the business school, it could be in anything, but they are intellectually enriched, then we've done our job. Now, imagine if the objective function that I'm trying to now maximize is minimize hurt feelings, uh, m- minimize the marginalization of marginalized groups. Now, those objective functions that you're trying to, in this case, optimize might be perfectly contrary to the original goal, which was, right? So if you're pitting uh, minimizing hurt feelings against maximizing truth-seeking, those things will often, and not always, but will often coincide, uh, will conflict, right? Mm -hmm. So for example, if I want to show you using an evolutionary framework that uh, there is a universal sex difference where the 
the the the sex that performs better on that function doesn't fit the politically correct narrative well you better make sure to not publish that because then that might marginalize one sex and it might might perpetuate patriarchal uh, sexist stereotypes right on the other hand if you think no, if I applied the scientific method truthfully in an unbiased manner, then let the let the dice, you know, let the cards fall where they they fall. It it is what it is. So I think that that's what you know opens the door for all this stupidity to come in. Now it's the idea pathogens then that oil the machine of irrationality, right? So let's start with the granddaddy of all idea pathogens: postmodernism. Postmodernism took took hold of many, many disciplines. And it basically argued that there are no objective truths other than, of course, the one objective truth that there are no objective truths. And therefore, what's up, what's down, what's left, what's right? We can't really talk about male or female. Even that is fluid. There is no universal truth to speak of. So you might imagine how much of a nihilistic position that is, how anti-science it is, because scientists do wake up every day thinking that there is a universal truth to be discovered. Now, in science, it's provisionally true. What we thought was true, we used to think in medicine that it was due, all diseases were due to the four humors, right? Uh, now we don't think that. And so we, we understand that science is autocorrective, but we do epistemologically think that there is a truth to be discovered. Well, many of these idea pathogens completely destroy that possibility. So that cocktail of stuff that I just said is exactly why we are in the abyss of infinite lunacy today. Right. And um, be besides the um, besides coming to speak at free speech and medicine, uh, how do we, again, again, another huge question, but how do you see us best fighting back against this? Because people, people often ask me that, like, what can I do about this? It's so frustrating. What do you, what do you think the average person could do? Yeah, that's great. Well, listen, uh, you are the example of what you need to do. You, you're a physician who undoubtedly leads already a very busy life. You can merrily go about treating your patients in a ethical, proper manner and say, look, you know what, let, let God sad worry about all this stuff. You know, I think Jordan Peterson can handle this. You know, Joe Rogan's got, got a much better platform than me, but something within you compelled you to say, no, however big or small my voice is, I think I can contribute to this battle of ideas for the soul of our societies. So in exactly that same way, everybody can modulate the extent to which they can intervene in this battle. It might be as little as when I'm a, at the pub with my friends, so this is a safe environment, where someone says, oh no, but of course we now know that men too can menstruate, maybe challenge them on that. Really? I didn't, I didn't know that. I thought only women menstruate, right? So the idea is that all I'm imploring people to do is get engaged. Some of us will have big, big weaponry to get engaged. Some of us will have little water guns, but we're all participating. We're not diffusing the responsibility on the shoulders of others. And if we do that, I promise you the silent majority hates that stuff. It's the it's the vociferous minority that's holding the silent majority hostage. If we all find our voices in unison, we'll get rid of this stuff by next Tuesday. Lovely. Well, um, as I, I we have sort of a hard out, so I'll ask you another question. Um, sure. I've I've read the Parasitic Mind, very much enjoyed it. Um, I we've bought your new book; it's uh, sitting waiting to be read. So maybe in a nutshell, what what is the sad truth 
Dr. about Sean. happiness. Uh, yeah, well, they are, well, they are uh, find the right spouse, find the job that gives you purpose and meaning, adhere to the ancient uh, uh, Aristotle maxim of everything in moderation, uh, view life as a playground, seek variety within moderation, uh, try to live your life so that you don't ruminate in regret later in life, uh, have uh, an ethos of anti-fragility to failure. Very few goals that we wish to achieve don't are not littered with or or with a minefield of possible failures. Lionel Messi, the greatest soccer player of all time, was told that he was too small and frail to ever be a professional soccer player. Uh, J.K. Rowling was rejected by every single publisher until the last one didn't reject her. Steven Spielberg. Uh, was rejected not once, not twice, but three times from the USC film school. And so uh, I basically go through each of these chapters where I offer some prescriptions. But just to, to, to make it clear to the audience, unlike most, quote, self-help books, I've got the epistemological humility to say, I don't guarantee you that if you pursue these prescriptions, you'll be happier. But life is about navigating through statistical probabilities. If you implement these uh, prescriptions, you certainly increase your chances of being happier. So that's in a nutshell what the book is about. It's a bit of personal anecdotes coupled with ancient wisdoms backed up by contemporary science. That That is a great summary. And certainly it sounds like people need to get that book. Well worth it. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Um, yes. Um, so do you want to give us a little hint of uh, towards your what you're going to be talking about at Free Speech and Medicine? In a sense, we, we we covered a lot of the general themes here. I'm going to get into how these idea pathogens proliferate, how they affect our ability to uh, feel confident enough to engage in freedom of speech. So one of the things that I'll talk about, which I've recently been talking about in several of my uh, invited uh, lectures, this um, the important distinction between deontological versus consequentialist ethics. Deontological is an absolute statement. It is never okay to lie, would be a deontological statement. Consequentialist would be, it's okay to lie if I'm trying to spare someone's feelings. Well, when it comes to science, when it comes to truth-seeking, when it comes to freedom of inquiry, freedom of speech, that has to be a deontological principle. Once you say, I believe in freedom of speech, but once you say, but, you are you don't believe in freedom of speech, notwithstanding the usual caveats, no defamation, no invocation mm -hmm. to violence and so on. And so I will be talking about the importance of viewing these fundamentally important values as deontological principles. Lovely. Well, we we really appreciate you coming. I know you were you were invited to the uh, Jordan Peterson's ARC initiative, and uh, I uh, appreciate that you know, rather than hang out with those crazy all right people over there, Britain, <laughs> you're, you're coming to our, uh, our well, little conference I, in Cape Breton. So we feel very, very fortunate and blessed that you're coming. Uh, thank you very much. And, and I'll end with a very important question. So when I post this podcast, I wanted to make sure I use your correct pronouns. And is it okay to use he, him? Uh, please use he, him. Although, as we know from the very smart people at Harvard, my gender identity is situationally fluid so by the time that you post it it may no longer be he him but as we're speaking today it is he him so go with it okay so you, you can let me know if there's any updates i will indeed thank you so much okay and i look forward to meeting you in uh, about three and a half weeks likewise cheers thanks so much